Someday, Liz, I'll go back, said Private First Class Peter Robert Zanetta of the 37th Engineer Combat Battalion and first assault wave to hit Omaha Beach. I'll go back and I'll see it all again. I'll see the beach, the barricades, and the graves. Those words of Private Zanatta come to us from his daughter, Lisa Zanatta Hen, in a heart-rending story about the event her father spoke of so often. She tells some of his stories of World War II, but says of her father, the story to end all stories was D-Day. He made me feel the fear of being on that boat waiting to land. I could smell the ocean and feel the seasickness. I can see the looks on his fellow soldiers' faces, the fear, the anguish, the uncertainty of what lay ahead. And when they landed, I can feel the strength and courage of the men who took those first steps through the tide to what must have surely liked, looked like instant death. And like all the families of those who went to war, she describes how she came to realize her own father's survival was a miracle. So many men died. I know that my father watched many of his friends be killed. I know that he must have died inside a little each time. Lisa Zanata Hen began her story by quoting her father who promised that he would return to Normandy. She ended with a promise to her father who died eight years ago of cancer. I'm going there, Dad. And I'll see the beaches and the barricades and the monuments. I'll see the graves and I'll put flowers there just like you wanted to do. I'll feel all the things you made me feel through your stories and your eyes. I'll never forget what you went through, Dad, nor will I let anyone else forget. And Dad, I'll always be proud. Through the words of his loving daughter, who is here with us today, a D-Day veteran has shown us the meaning of this day far better than any president can. It is enough for us to say about Private Zanatta and all the men of honor and courage, we will always remember. We will always be proud. We will always be prepared so we may be always free. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have really special guests on with me today. Um, guys that have served for a number of years in the United States Army, and then after getting out, have continued to serve uh, the veteran community in, in many different ways, and we're going to talk about all of that. I'm on with Tom and Scott Spooner. Gentlemen, how's it going? Going good, great. John. How are you? I'm good, and you know it's 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 great to finally be able to get you guys on. Um, you know, there's a lot of content that is put out in this in this kind of genre of you know military military history, world history, um, and some of the stuff that you guys have done, you know, through video and, and then now through your podcast is really incredible, and and it's something that I I would like to you know help 
kind of push out there for people to be able to consume it. As I feel like a lot of the things that are out there aren't, um, I don't know what the right word is for it, but I feel like what you guys are doing is is, is very real. So it's, it's something I would like to, you know, have my audience be able to uh, get a little piece of it. That sounds great, man. We'd be more than happy. Yeah, we uh, we appreciate the opportunity. Uh, so thanks for having us on. And um, as with all things Tom and I do, we pretty much have no plan. <laughs> so we don't have one here. Um, other than that, like you said, uh, hopefully give your audience something uh, to sink their teeth into as it relates to you know the type of material and content that is around guys uh, that have backgrounds uh, similar to ours and um, you'll get the, the real deal for sure. Um, that's pretty much the only way we, we know how to, to do business. So look forward to uh, whatever questions you got for us. Yeah. So I, I would like to start with like from the very beginning, um, if, if you guys can kind of take turns or, or maybe jump in together and, and talk about, your introduction to the army, uh, you know, some people, everyone's journey is kind of different. Um, some people kind of just falls into their lap and then some people kind of really plan for it. Um, what was that like for you guys? You well, want to kick it off, Scott, or you want me? Um, you go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, and you, John, you just talking about just in the intro to it, as far as like how to get, how we got in. Yeah, like, like, or, or, you know, what, what was your mindset, you know, right before you joined, and 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 then if, you know, after you talk about that part, if we could kind of roll through your career a little bit. Sure, man. Yeah, for uh, and this is Tom. I'll kick it off. Is uh, you know, for me, I've always just wanted to join the military. Uh, even whenever I was a little kid, I mean, uh, I was inspired by my grandfather, who was World War II vet, my uncle, Vietnam vet. You know, those were some good inspirations that I had. But just at my core, it's just something that I've I've always been attracted to. I've always wanted to do. And um, so uh, I started uh, before I joined the Army, though, I uh, had a little bit of a different career path as far as I went to college. And the only reason why I went to college was because my grandfather and my uncle said, hey, if you're going to join the military, you need to be an officer. And so because uh, they were both enlisted guys. So you know, respectful of them and what they wanted me to do is like, okay, I'll give this uh, college a try. And, uh, but I really didn't want to. So I failed miserably, uh, had, a, <laughs> had some really good times. And uh, the funny thing was, is I even went to, uh, I went to airborne school as a cadet uh, at, at our, through the ROTC program at Florida State. And, um, but that didn't work out too well for me. I mean, airborne school did and uh, came back home and I ended up just uh, quitting all that and joining, enlisting in 1990, um, uh, the summer of 1990. And so I joined the military. And as soon as I was got to basic, uh, you know, that's when so I did basic AIT. I was 11 hotel, uh, not by choice. It's what they, they uh, my, my, my plans going to Ranger Battalion got de- derailed like immediately uh, because they don't take 11 hotels, you know, into the Rangers. So, um, so, so I ended up being quickly for the ahead. audience. Uh, so some of the audience might not know 
what is an 11 hotel or 11 H? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My bad. 11 hotel is, uh, is a tow missile gunner. So it's an infantryman, uh, that has a specialty. Tow missile is a tube launch optically tracked command link wire guided missile. How about that? Boom. One? <laughs> boom. <laughs> so it goes but, boom. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it goes boom, man, and it's uh, made for taking out tanks and stuff. And um, so that's that's what Eleven Hotel is, and and they didn't need any of those in a uh, range battalion, so I didn't get a chance to go to uh, what they call RASP nowadays. So, uh, but I immediately went to the eighty second. Um, so I went to the eighty second. Uh, well, first I got married, you know, because before you go to war, you're supposed to get married, because that's what they do in the movies and stuff. And uh, so I got so I got married and. Um, and went to and within shit within a month and a half uh, I was in Saudi Arabia, and um, so it, you know for the Gulf War, and then uh, got there probably around November uh, time frame of ninety. War kicked off in ninety one, and um, you know that was my first experience at combat. You know from coming straight off the street. You know we didn't have a lot of combat, but I mean uh, you know I, I definitely saw what war brought to the table. Uh, you know, um, uh, really enjoyed it the whole time I was there uh, because we had a lot of uh, Vietnam veterans at the time that were still, you know, I mean, that were still in the military. Like my platoon sergeant was a Vietnam vet, you know, so I was just always around. My whole career was just around these um, examples of these warriors, you know, that were combat proven and uh, which, you know, taught me everything that I needed to know. So I spent five years in the 82nd, uh, from 90 to 95. Uh, once I left there, I, uh, went to selection for special forces, uh, at the end of 95, made it, uh, became an 18 Charlie, which is, a uh, special forces engineer, you know, basically focusing on explosives. Uh, I went to seven special forces group. I, uh, worked central and South America, uh, pre 9-11, you know, from 96 to 2001, several deployments to uh, Colombia, Ecuador, Venezuela, Honduras, you know, uh, Nicaragua, all around. Really, really enjoyed uh, that job. Uh, then whenever, uh, and then in September of 2001, I ended up going to uh, selection for Delta. And uh, so I made it out there. And then... Uh, from 2001 until 2011, uh, you know, as an operator out at Delta, uh, it was uh, everything from an assault teams, uh, assault team leader, and then sniper team and sniper team leader. I ended up doing out of my career a total of 12 deployments, uh, one Afghanistan, 11 Iraq. Ended up having a total of uh, 40 months uh, time in combat. Uh, finished up my highest duty position when I finished up was a uh, team leader. Uh, out at the unit. And, uh, then I retired in 2011 and that pretty much is as far as just my, uh, just my military career roll up. And did you go to selection before uh, September 11th or after September 11th? Uh, yeah, I was, I was already slotted to go. Uh, I, it was, uh, mid to late September. I think it was when I went. So, uh, you know, nine 11 had already happened. And then just a few weeks later, uh, is whenever I was in selection. So the interesting thing for me is, uh, my whole career, uh, I was operational 
when I was in 82nd, when I was in seventh group, and then out at the unit. So I have about uh, 16 years of, uh, of team time, you know, on an operational detachment, whether that was, you know, on an ODA in, uh, in seventh group or, you know, on a, on a team out at the unit. Okay. So that's a long time of, um, you know, running operations and the last, uh, you know, 17 years, 18 years have been busy for, you know, the, the American warfighter and, um, specifically for special operations. Um, right. So, you know, that's a lot of work. And and then that will roll into, you know, what I'd like to talk about in a little bit with regards to some of the stuff that you guys have been doing post-military. Um, of course. But before we get into that, um, Scott, can we talk about your beginning in the Army and then roll through your career a little bit as well? Sure. <clears throat> I do want to highlight what Tom just said, though, because it's pretty rare um, as far as him staying operational for essentially 20 years, um, you know, almost everyone gets a, um, instructor tour, a time on staff somewhere. Um, and that's the norm. And actually it's a pretty good move, uh, to take a break. So, um, Tom had an, a just truly amazing career staying operational that long. Uh, I just wanted to point that out, brother. Thank you, sir. Um, let's see. My, I'd like to tell you that I had the inspired story that Tom had, but I didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I was more so um, most likely to be dead in a ditch or permanently in jail uh, at 17. And luckily, my heroes are folks I know, and one of them is Tom um, and my dad and also my uncle. Um my grandfather as well, but none of them inspired me to, to join the military per se. They were inspiring people in my life. Um, and I really, I, I just barely graduated high school and, um, needed, I needed a path and some discipline. Um, and Tom was already in, so he five years older than me, but only two years ahead in the military, uh, after his two year drinking career. I mean, he went to college for a little while. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I enlisted as well, um, with the, just wanted to go be a paratrooper. Um, and as fate would have it, the only job they had available in the 82nd airborne was the 11 hotel, the tow missile gunner that Tom, uh, oh, wow. did a really good job of explaining. <laughs> um, <laughs> So we had the same job there. Um, so I went to 82nd, and that was in 1992. Um, stayed there for about two and a half years, just long enough to figure out good fundamentals of, of leadership and of how to be successful in the military. Um, yet I didn't fit real well there. Way too many rules. Um <laughs> I'm a bit of a free thinker and entrepreneur and, um, had a good, had a good time, was successful, uh, but only stayed in infantry about two and a half years. And then I went to special forces selection, uh, 96 and made it and same, same job. I was an 18 Charlie, became an engineer, um, learned to speak French very poorly, was assigned to third special forces group, <laughs> which covers, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and, the, and portions of the Middle East, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa was where the French piece came in. Um, I spent about a year on a 
water team and um, then moved over to a free fall detachment and uh, had an absolute love affair with free fall, military free fall. Um, and this was all during peacetime, as Tom talked about, um, multiple deployments to the Middle East, more time than I wanted to spend in Kuwait. Fucking place is hot. Um, a few great trips over to Southern Africa. Um, a lot of time jumping and um i enjoyed those years a lot and in 2001 i came up for my instructor tour uh which like we were talking about tom didn't do but usually after back then anywhere from four to five years on a team you you would go to the schoolhouse of swick to either run a part of selection or, or any portion of the q course or specialty schools um, and I was super fortunate in that uh, I got to go over to the what's known as a qualification course. Uh, so for the listeners, that's the, um, when guys go to special forces selection. Once you get selected, then you get given your job. Um, and you're either going to be a medic, a communicator, um, weapons guy, or an engineer if you're enlisted. Um, and I taught on the engineer committee that it's called. And I focused on nothing but the explosive side of the house, um, which was my biggest passion, so to speak, within my job. So I spent three years um, teaching, which that was, um, I signed in my instructor tour September 20th, 01. So nine days after September 11th. So I had a bit different experience right out of the gate in that uh, I didn't go to combat for several years because uh, once you're locked in on your instructor tour, you can't go anywhere. I think the whole world was trying to get out of it. And, and of course, the, the boss laughed and was like, yeah, these fuckers aren't going anywhere. Because, um, you know, the, the schoolhouse still has to produce um, more Green Berets. Right. Um, interesting story there. Um, yeah, I, I was definitely an instructor during a time of transition because it was it was a time when the White House actually began to mandate they wanted more Green Berets, uh, and I think that was after the, the, the you know the horse soldier story brought all that on. Right. Less I digress. Um, after my three years there, um, I volunteered to go out to uh, Delta to be part of a. Um, breaching program that only exists there and um got hired for the job and spent the next six years out in the unit um specializing in nothing but all all manners of breaching and entry um i was in a direct support role that it's it's called a direct support role as a heavy breacher um my last position out there was a troops arm major uh, excuse me troops arm major of a specialized entry troop and that took me um let's see i did nine months in combat uh, all my combat time was in the unit and um got out in 2009 okay. and then that starts the next part of the journey so I did 17 years. Okay. Yeah, I've actually had um, guys who, who went through that heavy breacher program on the podcast before. Um, and I, I think that was almost exclusively uh, something that 18 Charlies were, were filling, the role that they were filling, if I'm not mistaken. In the beginning, it was. It okay. kind of shifted over time, but yeah. 
Okay, cool. Def- so, um, this is something that uh, I, I don't remember if it was on a video uh, that you guys were giving interviews or if it was on a podcast. Like, I really can't remember. But I do remember, you know, what was said. And it was, um, you know, there was a point in your careers, both of your careers, where you guys were in Iraq at the same time. Um, what was that like? Yeah, man. Uh, we'll, I'll kick it up this time. It has, uh, cool. Yeah, man, it was, uh, like you said, we we were in different subunits, so it, it worked out really good for us because, like, when I was on a deployment, normally, you know, Scott would be back, and then whenever he was on a deployment, I would be back, you know, helping take care of the family. We only, At the time, we only lived, like, five minutes from each other, so it worked out really well. And then 2005 time frame, you know, whenever all the surges were going on and, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty, you know, bloody 05 yeah. time frame, you know, we were, uh, we were both there at the same time for, I think, uh, I think it was about a month or a month and a half. And, um, you know, one aspect, we always thought that it would be like, Hey, how cool would that be? Obviously we weren't hand in hand. We were different in different subunits and, uh, in different geographical locations, but it was, Still, just the idea of both being there doing it at the time was pretty good, so we thought. Uh, but then uh, what ended up happening, as in combat, uh, you know, they they Scott's element that he was in, you know, they suffered a lot of a lot of kills and wounded uh, guys. And during not being too specific, but during one of the nights, whenever that happened, you know, I was in a, a location that was probably about probably about three, four hours away from where Scott was. And, uh, you know, calls came over the radio of, Hey, this many KIA, this many wounded, wounded. And, uh, and I didn't know who it was, you know? So for at that moment, it was a very, uh, horrible, helpless time, you know, because like all of those guys that were killed or wounded, you know, were my brothers in arms, uh, which is, which is insanely exceptional. And then on top of that, Hey, my actual brother, you know, blood brother, you know what I mean? Uh, might be amongst that too. So it was a, it was a really horrible time and it kind of threw away that, uh, that whole idea of us being so cool, being in combat together, you know, of like, yeah, man, I don't ever want this to happen again. And, uh, so, you know, it's just like everything in life. You think something will be a certain way. And then, uh, and then when it actually is, you, you get the truth, you know, and for me anyway, the truth was, is that, yeah, I didn't ever want that to happen again. And uh, <laughs> so that was just my perspective on it. Yes, I mean, that was, I, I had a similar event at the end of that trip because there were some guys that got shot that were with Tom. Um, you know, the, the, back to the night Tom was talking about, I definitely can't imagine what it was like to be on his end uh, because the event occurred. I was, you know, I, I was there and uh, we did, we lost uh, three and um, one got, you know, really bad off. One got paralyzed and uh, it was just a fucking horrible uh, night. Way worse for a lot of people, you know, other folks than it was for me for sure. Um, but for, for Tom to just get that call, and I, you know, for me to get that call and not to know if it was him or not actually did happen. And it was literally the same rotation four weeks later, except I was packed up. All my stuff was on the pallet already. I was heading home and, you know, the next day and somebody walked in the room and said, Hey, three guys just got shot 
And because um, I was laying there and I literally just lifted up. And I'm like, are they going to live? They're like, yeah. I was like, is any of them Tom? They're like, no. And I laid back down, went to sleep. Um, <laughs> you, you know, so, um, yeah, like Tom said, we've quickly figured out we liked the, the rotation better when one of us was home and when one of us was gone. Right. And I guess, you know, being brothers and living near each other, that really helps to be able to, you know, help out with the other's family while they're deployed. Um, cause you know, I, obviously, and it's, this is something that, um, I think Tom posted it on his Instagram or, or maybe it was on the, uh, the podcast Instagram where you're talking about like sacrifice and, and, um, in some ways, you know, what you guys were doing as warriors wasn't so much a sacrifice because you signed up to do it. And then I, I commented that if, you know, kind of with that train of thought, this the sacrifice would really be the family that's making the sacrifice, you know? Yeah, man. For me, it's the really the only ones. And that's why we're just real careful with the words that we use and how we use them. It's like, you know, in order for someone to sacrifice something, you know, they themselves have to give it up. You know, so like like we were talking about, like all the stuff that I was doing was not a sacrifice, you know, because that's what I wanted to do. And the same thing for my wife, you know, she signed up and got on board with me, you know, knowing the job that I had, you know, um, on her own free will and choice, you know, so right. that was just part of it. To your point that you were saying, really, the the ones that really just have to eat the decisions that we all make as adults is our children. Right. You know, because they, they aren't really having to sacrifice because they don't have a choice, you know what I'm saying? They, uh, they're like, wow, okay, this is kind of just a shit show that they've been, that we've ordered up for them. And, and it's not a shit show, but you know, it's like, hey, we put these demands on their lives because of uh, the choices as adults we have made. So, so it makes their life pretty tough. Right. And that's what, when Scott and I being together, uh, and not just Scott and I, but how the families of guys, uh, Specific, and I'll just speak specifically, you know, in the unit where we were at, you know, is, uh, you know, they really took care of each other. And um, and that's what we would always do for each other, because the, you know, the guys that were deployed couldn't take care of anything, you know, whether that was folks, you know, that stuff that needed to be done at home. And also whenever the wounded and and killed, you know, got came from the deployment theater, you know, it was another another sub elements responsibility uh, of tending to them, you know, of taking care of those families, you know, of taking care of all the ceremonies and, uh, you know, and everything that needed to happen. So it was, um, there was a lot of work being done, uh, by the family members and other unit members taking care of the guys that were deployed. I mean, it was a, uh, it was a very special thing, you know, that we were all a part of whenever it came to that. So I wanted to ask you guys um, uh, if, if you guys could maybe each uh, contribute to this this question. Um, would you be able to share like a deployment story, uh, something that stood out to you uh, over your career? You know, obviously, if it's, if it's something that you can talk about, you know, I would I would appreciate. I think the audience would really appreciate to hear from you about it. Truthfully, the, the super impactful story from combat was the one we just told. Mm, I think it kind of filled, you know, both, both spots. Um, I I think 
just for the sake of, you know, if, if there's something relevant that comes up that we can tie back in, I'm sure Tom and I both would, would be happy to do that. But as far as just um, anything randomly, you know, I don't really have anything. The thing, the thing that, I, that came to mind uh, for me is not any, not any story very specific, but just those times, man. You know what I mean? 2010 um you know those were uh just incredible times you know i mean where war was conducted uh to my knowledge you know on an unprecedented level in the special operations community uh, specifically to where we worked i mean uh the operational tempo uh, not just of the operators and, and the direct support and everybody that was able to, you know, do it on the ground, but as an institution, say, I don't know, from, you know, is like the amount of, of, of operations that would go down every night uh, was absolutely unprecedented. And the, the thing that made it even more special than that is that, um, is that it became sustainable in a way of life, you know, for almost 10 years straight. Well, I mean, just right at nine years straight, uh, you know, that level of warfare, you know, was going on every day and every night uh, for almost 10 years straight, uh, which is just absolutely incredible. Right. And, and that's the entire process of, the, you know, getting the intelligence, going out and, and hitting different spots and then getting more intelligence and then going out and hitting more spots. And, um, you know, the yeah. campaign that was ran by the, I mean, all, all Americans that were in theater and they were fighting, um, yes. it, it was important, you know, um, but, you know, what specifically what the special operations community was doing there in regards to breaking up networks and, and going after uh, these groups was was really was unprecedented at, at the speed that it was done and and the the um, the organization and you know working with uh, allied nations special operations units and stuff like that. I mean, th- there's a lot of like kind of public information on this stuff. Um, yeah, man. And the and the thing about it too, and I'm glad you mentioned it is uh, is that the only way that special operations and this is just as Tom sees it, right? Is uh, the only way special operations. Uh, forces were able to go about the battlefield the way that they did was because how badass the conventional army, you know, and the conventional military, you know, was locking things down. Yeah. You know, I mean, they were, they were the ones that gave us the flexibility. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, 15 dudes going into some of the worst places, say in Iraq, like that can't be done unless you've got, you know, a few tanks and a, and about 50 other, conventional guys coming to rescue your ass, you know, when you get in a sleep, you know, so, so that's what I, you know, like you said, the, the real kind of unsung heroes, you know, are those, are the the conventional guys that are just grinding it out. Uh, you know what I mean? With limited funds, with limited, uh, equipment, you know, everything that they have to do, just, you know, I mean, just grinding, man, they're they're the ones that made it up all the rest of it capable right and i think like um uh you know with with the 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 focus of you know these this type of warfare 
which was similar in 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 some ways to to Vietnam, like the the mindset and the, the unconventional kind of warfare aspect of it. Um, but you know, like a, a special operations team would go in and, and hit a house or so, or hit several houses, and then um, you know when they leave, it may be a conventional army unit or uh, marines that would have to then stay in that area, you know, for nine months or seven months or you know however long that their deployment was. Uh, so there's different kind of difficulties in um, in what people are experiencing, you know. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, I think the other thing is the technological aspect of warfare um, to qualify the quantifiable aspect of it. You know, you brought up Vietnam and the unconventional nature. Um, I wasn't there, so I can't claim to understand it totally yet. I can say with certainty that the the quality uh, of intelligence that we have these days and the precision at which missions are executed on a regular basis um, has to be 10x. I mean, if you if you look at if you hear the number a um, dead 120 hits this rotation, well, that means that was 120 hits that had actionable intelligence with high probability of bad people every time, right? You look back so that so that the intensity. Um, of combat on a consistent basis um, is the other the other piece of it, and it's through the technology um, that everything is is you know you literally can have intense after intense after intense over and over again, um, which they didn't have back then. That's true, man. Great point. Right, right. I think um, just kind of looking back at at the Vietnam War. Um, you know, there were several special reconnaissance units, um, you know, including Green Berets and then Sog. Right, Mac V. Sog. And their entire purpose was to literally go behind enemy lines and get some intelligence. Um, and because Vietnam was so, like, closed off, um, they really didn't know what was happening in, in North Vietnam. So that made things difficult. And that made, you know, the Sog mission so dangerous. Um, Actually, a friend of mine was a team leader in SOG. I've had him on the podcast before. And um, and I'm sure you guys know this, uh, you know, being Green Berets, but, you know, what those guys were doing every time that they went on a mission was, like, incredibly dangerous. And they were, like, you know, in the middle of the jungle, very little support, uh, going up against a, a numerically superior uh, enemy, you know. Oh, and they were, that's back legit whenever the U.S. would deny 100%. Yeah. <laughs> those, those, those guys knew that when they went across, that that was it. If they came back, cool. If not, see ya. Yeah, man. And and the one thing that I wanted to bring up, too, kind of in Scott's story and both of ours is, um, you know, one of the things that helped both of us out as war fighters and just learning stuff was uh, was the incredible people that we warriors that we had to teach us like when scott was at the schoolhouse you know he had pappy and and ernie tabata there you know that he was to learn from and which are those guys that you just talked about you know so that was just yeah ernie was ernie was a team leader in sog as well Mm. yeah and i I guess in, in many ways some of those guys were really the the founding members of of delta of of the unit you know as a couple years later you know they kind of um. Uh, Jesus Christ! I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. 
um, Beckwith, Charlie Beckwith, you know, the guy who, who, who founded the unit. Uh, right. he, he was, a he was an officer at project Delta, which was another special reconnaissance unit, um, in Vietnam. And then several of the officers who came, who were the first officers at the unit were guys who served in SOG and project Delta. So they were really kind of the, the, uh, the forefathers of, of, of the unit, which came, you know, a couple of years later. Yeah, man. So, um, <clears throat> so here's something I also wanted to talk about. Again, I don't remember if this was on a video or a podcast, but I remember uh, Tom was saying something to the effect of, uh, it was easier for you to be deployed in a war zone than it was to be at home, you know, watching television in the living room. Um, I remember when I heard this, it completely blew my mind. Like, <laughs> right. like I didn't think something like that was possible. But, um, you know, throughout the talk, you know, you were saying things that then if you listen, you're like, oh, uh, even though I didn't experience this, it kind of makes sense. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure, man. Is uh, Yeah, that was one of the, I think, the the first interviews I did whenever I first got out. So it was pretty fresh, you know, and, uh, but, but for me, that statement, uh, specifically, you know, where it was in my career, which is, let's say the last, say two years of my deployments and stuff, you know, I had, I'd gotten banged up pretty good as far as, you know, and I didn't even know it at the time, but had a mild traumatic brain injury from a close mortar round, you know, and had some good amount of, of post-traumatic stress going on. Uh, nothing bad, but I mean, it was a lot of stuff going on. And then just being at war for that long, uh, you know what I mean? It, it was just, that was where I was most comfortable. I mean, it's what I had trained to do my whole life. And then we were executing those missions that I trained for my whole life, you know, for, you know, Like, yeah, I spent my whole 30s, you know, in and out of combat there. And uh, so it got very familiar to to the fact of of almost just by time spent, you know, I was more comfortable, you know, being in gunfights and being in all that chaos than being, you know, in my home. You know, and I have a wonderful home with my wife and, and two boys, you know, but uh, the truth of that that was going on in my life at that time was that I did feel you know, way more comfortable about that, you know, because I talk with a lot of guys that struggle, uh, you know, I mean, either after they get out or even sometimes where they're in, you know, where it's like, hey, man, you always got to remember what's important. But but the thing to understand, too, for me is just like I have to do the same thing with honing my skills at being a family member, <laughs> you, know? No, you know, the military – yeah, the military way of life has always just come very, very easy for me uh, as far as mindset and everything that we did. Um, you know, raising two young men, you know, I needed to do some training on that. <laughs> you know, I, uh, right. I just like the training that I received in the military, you know, I had to I had, you know, especially whenever I got out you know, then that's what I've put forth all my efforts towards like, okay, Hey, I'm not a soldier anymore. Like I'm not going to combat ever again. You know, that, that is over. It's like, okay, so what now, you know, but just, I didn't want to dive divert into all of that, but just that statement was a, uh, 
you know, was very true in my life. And I know it's true for a lot of guys in their lives, specifically at certain points in time. Right. And, and Scott, would you, would you say that, that you had a similar feeling or, or that you kind of understood, uh, understood that mentality at the time? I would say I would differ in that um, I can speak from experience and that life is simple in combat. Mm. Um, it's, it's a very black or white, um, black and white life, you know? Um, so very much more, um, yeah, just simple. There's not a lot of complexities, you know, as far as w- when you get up, it's time to work out or it's time to leave. Um, and I speak for myself as far as once the deal's made, uh, at a spiritual level with being okay with how the chips fall. Um, everything else just becomes focus on whatever's in the moment on making sure that me and those with me get home. It's literally, it's like, okay, my job's to keep those around me and me alive tonight um, and get done what we need to get done and totally good with everything else. So yeah, a lot, that's as simple as that's, there's no relationship struggles. There's no money or financial thoughts. There's no wondering about how retirement's going to be. There's no thoughts of the future. I mean, it, it's the most present uh, one can be to be fully immersed in a world where you're just good with how it ends. Um, and yeah, life at home's uber complex. Um, so yeah, I just talked myself through it. it. It's it's very simple and easy to say where it's more comfortable in combat than it is at home. And I, I think there's a, something to add to that as well that, you know, I've been thinking about lately as it relates to the PTSD side of the house. It's like, well, why is that a surprise? Right. <laughs> you know, what, why is that a fucking surprise that it will become more comfortable in, in, in a world that's in chaos and combat? Because to operate efficiently there, I believe I speak for not just me, but for all. Um, you have to have a mindset that's pretty different than what's required to live back here. Right. Um, a mindset that's so drastically different that that I, I'll speak from. I use eyes. You know, I have to learn how to disassociate all human emotion um, in some ways to make sure that there's no hesitation whatsoever as it relates to getting a job done. Right. So the, the power, the mental power, so to speak, that that that, that takes. Um, that's not a bridge you just run across and then I'll hop back to the other side when you come home. Um, so yeah, shit, of course, it, of course it's simpler. The rules are different. I went on a bit of a tangent. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Um, so, you know, now that, you know, we're kind of transitioning to talking about some of these issues and, and what you guys have been doing post army um some of the issues and and this is what i've come to understand from talking to different people and and um you know having friends going through some of this um some of the issues with guys not stepping forward and seeking help is one it can be perceived as them being weak um and then two it literally can cost them a job um i have a friend of mine who is in um naval special warfare and 
he is now because he he stepped forward and he had some issues with TBI. Uh, you know, he got banged up a little bit. Um, he's now having a fight for his job, his old job. So, can we talk about uh, this little bit? Is this something you guys have seen in your time in? Yeah, Tom, you want to? Well, I figured we're kind of doing a decent back and forth. I like to follow. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll keep rolling with it. Yeah, this is Tom. I'll. Uh, yeah, so in hi, speaking, Tom. <laughs> so in speaking, um, in speaking about that, like, uh, hey, why don't guys give help? You know, I can only give the perspective of my own. Uh, you know, I'll here. To, I'm here to tell you that uh, that I I knew I was struggling. Uh, struggling pretty good when I was on the job. But what I knew for sure is that it wasn't affecting the job. Right. So, cause I was never, I would never put my guys at risk because something that was going on at me. So I was always very aware of like, Hey, the troubles that I had going on. And at the time, you know I mean? One of the reasons why I didn't go seek help uh, was because I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want to lose my security clearance. Hey man, because the rules are the rules. If, uh, you know, I mean, if I have this Uber security clearance level and then next thing you know, I have some stuff going on mentally or emotionally. Hey, the only responsible thing for them to do is to remove that from me until I'm good to go again. Does that make sense? You know, I mean, uh, a lot of people like get up in arms about it. And uh, but, hey, that's the rules are the rules. So for me, it was like, hey, I knew I wasn't in a spot that was going to hurt him, but I knew I wasn't in a good spot. So that that did stop me from, from seeking help, you know, at that time, just, just one of the aspects. The reason why I got help whenever I did is, uh, is because I was getting ready to retire. So it didn't matter. Right. Uh, And I don't know if it was timing, you know what I mean? Where I had just reached to that point where I, I realized like, Whoa, I need to, I need to get some shit fixed. Uh, or if I was still be in the game. So that's hypothetical. So I only just stay with what happened to me. You know, and that was is that I was getting ready to get out. So I was like, okay, y'all want me to answer these questionnaires? Honestly, here you go. Um, <laughs> you know, so I did. So I did. And um, but the thing is, too, is uh, whenever it comes about guys seeking help, uh, and this is always one that I really love talking about. You know, whenever I was a uh, before, I, I had like a year and a half in the army when I was at the. Uh, first leadership school that the army sends you to the primary leadership development course you have to go to it before you can become a sergeant in that course you know in 1992 uh, when i found that out uh, they talked about they didn't call it pts in those books then they called it battle fatigue which you know through the years we know they called it soldier's heart shell shock battle fatigue and then now ptsd is uh as i learned in that book and from those instructors that pts and battle fatigue, whatever you want to call it, is a leadership issue. It is my job as a leader to identify that in my troops and then and then seek guidance. You know what I mean? Once that's identified, right? So nowadays you hear all this bullshit talking about like, hey, if guys need help, they'll come forward. It's all, it's all chicken shit leadership. Uh, because as a leader, I'm supposed to know my people. And if I know my people are struggling then I get them help. Now that may be help with pistol shooting. That may be help with jump mastering. That may be help with mental issues, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's a leadership issue to handle that. And that's where we're failing. 
And, uh, but I'll come off of that rant right now. Sorry about that. And, uh, but it's, the thing is, is that, um, you know, the other reason why guys don't get help and I'm only talking about in the special operations community, cause that's where I was, is that all the selections that we go through, uh, all the training that we go through, um, as individuals is, uh, it guarantees a bunch of stuff. You know, you go through these selections and it equals an end product at the end. But two things that it guarantees is, is number one, I'll never quit. Uh, and then number two is I'll never ask for help. Right. That's why you hired me. That uh, is because I could get the job done on my own. And so then they wonder why guys don't reach out for help. You know, it, it doesn't even follow a train of logic, uh, you know, for me to say someone who's in a bad way, like, hey, if you need something, let me know. You know, the answer and narrative now has to be it's like, hey, you know, me reaching out to that person. I think I came off topic pretty good. No, that's fine. That's totally fine. <laughs> okay. But I just I just kind of back to your question, you know, what I mean, about guys getting help, you know, what I mean, we really we really got to do a better job of policing our own, you know what I mean? And being men and uh, and taking care of our guys, you know, and uh it's the same thing that we do on the battlefield. Because if we look at it just in a in a pure battlefield perspective, uh, whenever it comes to wounded guys, you know, like some guys, uh, they get wounded, they can do self-aid, buddy aid, and they're good to go. Other guys that get even more severely wounded, self-aid, buddy aid, hey, we need a medic. We bring the medic. Then you got some guys that are that are unconscious on the battlefield. Right. So they're unconscious on the battlefield. And so when we all leak up after the operation's done and uh, we say, hey, where's Tom at? You know, we don't just continue on with mission. We send somebody to go get him. You know, so why don't we do that whenever it comes to mental and emotional health? You know, we don't just leave the guys laying out there on the battlefield, do we? No. You know, I mean, it's like, so, hey, how come we're not doing that? So a lot of this talk and a lot of this stuff about you know, guys struggling and their stigmas and all that stuff is, uh, hey, it's all real and it's there. You know what I mean? There and, and in my opinion, it'll always be there because that's the way the military is. But uh, but we can do a hell of a lot better job uh, on our on our own of taking care of our own instead of just giving it lip service. Boom. <laughs> well said, Tommy. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it, so <clears throat> I'll kind of dive in on the other side of that because I agree with everything Tom said, hundred um, percent, and it'll and it will always be that way um, because there's always a need to fight. Um, there's always a need for warriors, and here's the 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 other side of that coin is that if you went in and identified everyone that has PTSD or TBI and had to put them on the bench to give them the treatment that they would need, there'd be no one to deploy. That's a reality, you know, and that, that is a reality as well. So it's, it's pretty much a meat grinder, uh, situation. Yeah. You know, it's funny, right? Like you said, Tom, between selections and training and all the courses, all the upfront investment yet they, they sent me out the door with a pat on the ass. Right. Um, there should be a, a year long decompression, right. To take care of guys, you're just sitting here talking through it because to, this is in line with your question. Why don't guys ask for help? The first thing is, as Tom said, 
from a military perspective, it's leaders that have to make people get help and save people from themselves. Once, once you get out and you're out here in, in, in the big world, you know, for all the same reasons Tom said, asking for help's not natural, for one. Um, we, are, we are built to problem solve for ourselves. And then the other part of the, uh, of the issue is a misunderstanding around the difference between physical vulnerability and emotional vulnerability. Um, and the myth that emotional vulnerability is a zero-sum game. And what I mean by that is that once I tell people how I feel or if I tell people how I really feel, um, that makes me weak. And guys don't realize that they can be emotionally vulnerable and still maintain the strength and spirit of a warrior, um, that one doesn't equal the other. And, um, you know, it's, it's been a, a, a process of awareness throughout the nation and globally, really, I mean, this is, it affects all militaries, but, you know, seven or nine years ago when I got out, I just walked out literally, um, no test for PTSD, no test for TBI, nothing. And, um, since then the level of awareness around PTSD, suicide, traumatic brain injury is exponentially been increased. So the good news is, is that socially it's becoming more acceptable for the warrior class to kind of come out and say, Hey, you know, things aren't right. And it's not that things aren't right. And it's also changing the narrative around that. It's like nothing's wrong. Things are exactly as they would be if you ask people to do what we have done. Right. Um, You know, it's more so around letting people know that it's okay, that help doesn't equal weakness, that asking for help actually requires more strength than anything. And this is all emotional shit. This is, by the way, the fix for everything that I'm going through and went through afterwards is pure emotional. It has nothing to do with the physical world and, and being a quote unquote badass. Um, the fixing can't happen from the outside. So it's, it's, it's a way of thinking and being that we're never even trained for at all. Right. So the one thing we need to do, which is to dive into the sides of our life where, where that are the emotion sides fucked up and then we've had no training for it. And it's been a figuring out process over the last nine years for Tom and I together and working with other veterans, um, telling our stories, um, being willing to fucking snot bubble cry if that that's what it takes. And also showing that, you know, we live our, our lives in strength as well. Um, and demonstrating that and just through that process of organically helping whenever, however we can, um, has led us down a path into the veteran space where, you know, Tom has warrior's heart now and, uh, he's, you know, got the only or one of the co-founders of one of the only purpose built uh, chemical dependency facilities that treats chemical dependency and the PTSD for just our warriors, veterans, first responders, law enforcement, military. 
um, that enable an environment for them to be around those like them as they get sober and then start to learn how to deal with the emotional aspects of the PTSD or TBI. Um, so it's something Tom and I are super passionate about and have seen it grow to the point where now uh, the quote-unquote badasses who, who used to make fun of us are actually now coming out and talking about their struggles, and it's freaking beautiful to see. A lot of lives are being saved now. Yeah, yeah. What you guys have been up to post army is really incredible. And you know, as you touched on, you know, warrior's heart. I would like to talk about that if if we can in detail and some of the the inner workings of it. If if anyone, so you know, a lot of veterans listen to the podcast and. Right. When we do some of these episodes and or portion of the episodes, we're talking about this subject. Uh, people have reached out to me and, and, you know, the last time I did a podcast, we, we spoke almost exclusively about brain injuries and, and things like that. I had a, um, a SARC on a, a, um, a, uh, a, a hospital corpsman, special operations. And then the other guy who was on was, um, uh, and a former 18 Charlie, and then he went into the unit in the, the Breacher program. I podcasted with him right as he was getting out. Things seemed, you know, relatively normal. And then for about a year, I didn't talk to him at all. And he just kind of went on a, a complete downward spiral with his brain injuries and how it was affecting him and stuff like that. He was finally able to get help, and it was more of like a a holistic approach versus just, you know, the VA just kind of telling you to take all these drugs and and it really helped him out. And he seems to be in a much better space now with himself and his family. And, and then when we did that episode, so many guys were reaching out, like saying, just listening to, to, you know, men of that caliber talk about these things really helped me out. So I know what you guys are doing and, and specifically with warrior heart, you're not just talking about it, but you're also offering real solutions for guys who have, or men and women who have gone through some of these injuries and experiences. So how does warrior heart work? Like, can we talk about that specifically? Absolutely, man. Is, uh, and I'd like to back up just a little bit, like you said, and talk about the why behind it. Cause then it'll make sense even more when we talk about it. And, uh, you know, I was, I got sober back in 92. I struggled with, uh, with alcoholism at a very young age. And, uh, and it, and just the short version of it is, is that I ended up getting sober in 92. So from 92 to 2011, you know, which was the majority of my military career, I was an active member, you know, of sobriety, you know, I mean, I was sober the whole time too, which, which is a little bit unheard of in those heavy drinking communities. And again, not that anything is wrong as drinking. We're not against drinking by any means. But if it's killing people and hijacking your lives and destroying your families, like, yeah, we got a fucking problem uh, with (laughs) with that going on. So uh, but just not to be confused, like, hey, we're not anti, you know, drinking and stuff. But um, anyway, I got sober, super passionate about it. You know, I mean, uh, was very involved throughout my whole career. You know, and then when I got out, you know, when I first got out, you know, I, because of my traumatic brain injury, you know, I mean, I, I almost took my own life and, uh, and it wasn't because I wanted to kill myself. It was because of the traumatic brain injury that I had and I could not think straight. 
and uh, and I needed and I was using all the tools in my toolbox, uh, you know, to try to to try to get better, and I couldn't. And uh, and I know what bullets do to brains, so I know that would that would stop it, you know. And uh, just by me, luckily, grace of God, my family, love, support, brothers, all of that, you know, I mean, it didn't happen. And uh, so it was a very for Scott and I both, you know, as we were super passionate when we got out of addressing the veteran suicide rate, which at the time was you know, 22 a day and very few people knew about it. And it was nowhere on any podcast about anything. So Scott and I did that initial piece um, because we didn't want other guys to suffer or we better said we knew other guys were suffering and no one was talking about it. And uh, part of what we know in life is to continue to serve uh, our brothers and sisters, you know, with our own experiences. And we started doing that you know, back in 2011 timeframe. So I was really involved in that piece and, and the veteran suicide rate. The thing about most veterans is, uh, is that, Hey man, if they want to kill themselves, they just do, you know what I'm saying? Like they just do it. The story usually goes when someone kills themselves, that's a veteran is like, Oh my, I knew they were doing bad, but I didn't think they were doing that bad. You know, where it's like, Oh my gosh, I really didn't see that coming. You know, so with, with that problem in place, then it really we really got to looking at it. It's like, hey, the majority, I won't say all of them, but the majority of those suicides, it, there's a self-medication connection to it. They were either on drugs, they were taking drugs, they were bombed out of their mind with alcohol or, or prescription drugs or whatever else. So it's like, okay, maybe if we address that, first then maybe it won't get to the suicide piece you know and um so you know a little over two and a half years ago that's where we made warrior's heart and like scott was saying is uh is warrior's heart you know i mean the primary the primary diagnosis there is chemical dependencies or self-medication and then obviously you know there's a lot of post-traumatic stress going on and there might be some um some traumatic brain injury going on with that the thing is, man, when you got like the hat trick going on, a chemical dependency, a PTS, and then TBI, like it's just a matter of time, you know, before you die. And uh, so we just, we started dressing it by kind of like how we did CQB, where it's like, hey, what's going to kill us first? There's a whole house of shit that's going to kill us here, you know, but let's address what's going to kill us in this room. And, uh, and what's in that first room is is if someone's self-medicating, that's the end of the game, man. Like you can go talk to the Dalai Lama. You can go get all this uh, kind of spiritual work done. You can go get all this brain work stuff done. You know what I mean? If you have, if you're self-medicating, that's the end of the, that is, it's, it's wasted time, you know? So, so we started doing, again, that was a really big passion of mine. So with the thing about Warrior's Heart, like Scott said, is that, it's the only place in the whole nation uh, that is only for our warriors, our protectors. And what I mean by that is, is as those that face life and death on a daily basis as a profession. And, um, and the reason why we kept that, number one, it's a field that I am very familiar with and we know how to treat. And then number two, it gives the one thing that no other place offers, and that's that peer-to-peer -peer network. You know, because the real magic that happens out there at Warrior's Heart is, you know, is that peers can rely on each other just the same way what we did in the professions, you know. And although a, a stateside paramedic 
and a combat veteran infantryman's experiences might be obviously are very different in the experiences that they had, but the things that are eating them up inside are exactly the same. It's always the kids that got killed. It's always the buddies that got killed. It's always the same stuff. So we, the reason why we have it out there at Warrior's Heart, you know what I mean, is we have that peer-to-peer network that's set up just for warriors because, you know, it's not going to work any other way. Like a combat veteran sitting across from a business guy, it's not, you know, you're not going to get a peer group. Same thing as if you have a cop sitting there sitting across from a drug dealer, like, hey, that's not going to work either. You know, so we kept it that way, you know. So in the two and a half years that we've been open, you know, we've had about 450 folks come through. And that's all walks of life from SF guys, from conventional guys, guard guys and gals. You know, we've had former have come through uh there at warrior's heart and um you know and it's a and it's a minimum 42 day inpatient treatment facility and uh and it's on a 540 acre ranch and it and it looks nothing like a hospital (laughs) (laughs) you know because we all everybody hates that stuff you know and uh, and the thing the funny thing too man is uh and i like talking about this piece is is that you know, whenever you're talking to psychs or you're talking to docs and all this stuff, they'll tell you that, hey, PTS, mild traumatic brain injury and chemical dependencies is a combat. I mean, is a complex issue. That's what they'll say. And, uh, and the answer to that is, is that it's absolutely not like for them. It's a complex issue. But for us and at Warrior's Heart, like we call that Wednesday afternoon, you know, or Tuesday <laughs> morning. Right. Because like, hey, man, that's what we do. You know, what I mean, I have suffered and recovered, you know what I mean, from chemical dependencies, you know, what I mean? and I have suffered and in recovery from PTS, I have suffered and in recovery from traumatic brain injury, you know what I mean? Everything that we do, there's experience based. It's not some bullshit uh, theories that someone thought of and like, hey, let's try this out. You know what I mean? Because I mean, these are our protectors. You know what I mean? The people that keep us safe, you know, the, from, from the firemen to the law enforcement, to the paramedics, to our soldiers, you know what I mean? To our military members, you know, um, it's like, Hey man, these people protect us. And when they have, you know, had some hard times, who's partaking, who's taking care of them? No, no one really other than themselves, you know, but that's, that's one of the main things we do. And I'll have to stop here because I'll just get on a rant, man, and keep on talking. <laughs> so uh, I'll pause there for uh, for anyone else to talk. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm a little passionate about that. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> as and, you should be. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's it's really one of the one of the reasons I wanted to get you guys on and talk about it because uh, you know so many uh, people who serve, like you said, in in first responders, law enforcement, or military have experience these these things and these uh like trials and tribulations and um i think it was scott like he said earlier you know the the awareness piece has has been dramatically raised where people know about it and it's a little more acceptable socially um which is a good thing and then you know in my mind what what you guys are doing at warrior's heart like that's really incredible and i think if that can be emulated 
several facilities around the country that would do so much good to so many people, you know? Absolutely, man. That's the plan. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I know. I mean, they're planning on <clears throat> branching out and opening up other locations, right, Tom? Next one's yeah. looking at North Carolina. Yeah, the next the next location that will that we'll be building, you know, the next Warriors Heart facility will be uh, it'll probably end up being sometime uh, mid to end of a nineteen, uh, but it'll be around the Fort Bragg area, you know. Uh, okay. Some yeah, man. So that way it'll service, you know, because we put the first one in Texas, uh, number one, because it's Texas, you know, meaning it's very uh, friendly towards law enforcement, towards military, you know, all that, and it right. was centrally located to the U.S. You know, so because we got guys co- and gals coming from all over the U.S., you know, to come. So, and, uh, and, you know, in a geographical separation, sometimes is a big effect to, you know, to the family. So the next one will be, you know, the North Carolina facility, which will begin to, to service kind of the East Coast, lack of better words, you know. And like you said, man, but the, the, the problem and the amount of folks that are having struggles uh, with these things that they rightly should have struggles with because they don't have any training for it is, uh, you know, we'll keep expanding on it, too. Yeah, and so now you guys have a um, a, a podcast, um, and I, I recently shared uh, sh- shared a post and and kind of directed some of my my audience on social media to you guys because I, I see what you know the content that you're putting out, and and obviously for anyone who's listening to this, by the time this goes up, uh, you'll see that you'll you'll hear that it's worth listening to. So, can we talk about your podcast a little bit? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so Tom and I started the original Freedom Podcast, I guess it's been about a month ago. And um, really the genesis of that goes all the way back to us kicking off out here in the private sector, which was um, me really at the time following my passion on building a profession and a career around personal development and leadership development. Um, you know, Tom and I have had passion for speaking and really for teaching more so than anything. Um, and teaching being sharing experience, um, our whole lives, whether it's helping people get sober, you know, I got sober and, and, uh, let's see two September, 2002, so 16 years ago. Um, and so teaching people to walk down spiritual paths and passive sobriety or better living to, you know, teaching folks about leadership, to teach explosives. I've always taught, Tom's always taught in some capacity. Um, and we wanted to share essentially our experience from all the best parts of our military and couple it together with our, our spiritual walks as well. And our walks in, in personal and self-development uh, into a way to package it up, so to speak, to share the best and the worst uh, as well. Uh, Cause that, that's the one thing, you ask, you know, why don't veterans get help? Really, it's applicable to all of mankind. Why don't humans ask for help? Um, and, it, and it's because we're, you know, we all deal with the same fears, the same insecurities, the feelings of less and lack. Um, and throughout the last nine years out in the private sector, um, working with corporations, working with individuals, and for myself specifically, really detaching from um, the military world and diving purely into the private sector and learning the similarities uh, that we all share. Um, 
it created this idea to, to get Tom and I together um, to share our experience with the world. Um, and and I, I truly believe that now um, we've managed to have a lot of success in the private sector, you know, over the last nine years, so cumulatively 18 years together there and almost 40 in the military. Um, when I looked at the landscape on what was out there as it relates to podcasts um, and personal development um, with folks from our background, um, I, I just saw that Tom and I together and our, our shared experience would offer, uh, my belief, something literally better than anything else that's out there. Um, and so we, um, got the concept together and really have done a lot of hard work. And I know Nate's just listening in, but I got to give Nate Horgan a huge shout out there. He joined our team about seven months ago now, um, and is, is really the guy who puts the magic together and original freedom, um, has nothing to do with freedom as it relates to nationalism or any governmental freedoms, um, it has everything to do with personal freedom. It has everything to do with having the courage to live, live one's life in alignment with one's truth. Um, and we're in a time that is really surface level social media bullshit. Um, and there's not a lot of truth out there. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, there's very little that can be trusted because if it bleeds, it reads. Um, and if it's horrible, uh, people want to talk about it. And we're also at a time when you look at as a nation in combat as a nation for the last never do math in public. But I think it's a solid 17 <laughs> years. Um, there's just we're, we're in a world that really um, desires to hear truth. Um, authenticity, uh, my, in my belief system is the most valuable thing on the face of this planet. That's the one thing that can't be bought yeah. when people see it, they fall in love with it. When people see it, they want to know what it feels like to honestly live one's truth. And so that's what the original freedom podcast is about. It's about sharing our experience around our paths in life, which are a lot of highs and a lot of lows and a lot of successes um, as well um, in a vast spectrum from military to the private sector so that people can see in themselves what we have found for, for ourselves, which is that they have the power within them. Um, and what they lack is the courage required to push through the fear that stands between them and what's greater possible in their lives. Um, and we do it in a way that's it's no bullshit. Um, if you want anybody to, to tell you it's all going to be OK, um, go, go talk to someone else. We'll tell you it's all going to be OK if you're willing to do the work that it takes to actually control the one thing that you can control, which is yourself which is the myth and illusion that, that the majority of humanity has, that if they can get the world in order outside of them, they'll be okay. And yet that's the one thing that we have no control over, which is people, places, and things. And so thoughts and perception are key. Um, and so anything we can bring to our audience as it relates to helping them create more power in themselves is what we want to share. Um, because we don't know the way for all we have a way that's worked and that's what we like to share. Uh, and, and like I always say, Hey, if we piss you off, cool. You're having an original thought run with it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So if um, you know, first I want to I want to thank you guys for doing this. Uh, you know, I really do appreciate it. Um, you know, like you were saying, as you look at the the different space and and at, at the kind of veteran media space, and then uh, things that are putting out that that are being put out by different people, different backgrounds. Uh, there's a lot of bullshit out there and, and just in social media in general. And, um, you know, that's why I, I really wanted to get you guys on because I, I feel like it's refreshing to hear some some uh, auth- authenticity. Um, so if anyone, anyone in my audience wants to keep up with you guys or check out your podcast or any guys who are going through some issues and, and maybe want to look into the, the Warriors Heart facility, where can they do all that? Well, yep. you can. Uh, <laughs> our website is um, if you go to, to um, ogfree.com, is a website that will get you to the podcast, it'll get you to our stories, um, cons- everything from consulting to podcast uh, to whatever else we got going on. Um, then on Instagram, bogfree, uh, at bogfree. Um, and Nate, what am I missing? Or Tom? Sorry. Yeah, man. It's just on the other, on all the other channels that I can't remember, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we got all that stuff. And I don't really know what all it is, but we can include it maybe in some digital product. (laughs) (laughs) So the the podcast is on iTunes, right, as well? Is that where it's syndicated? It's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. Um and it's on YouTube. If you go to YouTube, uh, just type in Original Freedom. Um, you'll see our logo, the OF there that has all our podcasts on it. Uh, on Facebook, uh, Original Freedom. And yeah, Instagram's at BOG Free. And then, man, for the, uh, and then on the Warrior's Heart piece, you know, it's real simple. It's warriorsheart.com. You know, we'll get you to the, uh, to the website. And then if anybody that's listening out there, there's also a phone number and it's 888-438-6616. And those are the two easiest ways, you know what I mean? To contact uh, folks at Warriors Heart. Awesome. So, um, you know, like I said, I want to thank you guys for doing this. Um, you know, I really appreciate it. And I know, you know, when we're talking about some of these issues that people are going through post-service or, or during their service, uh, this really does help people out. And, and that's, you know, what's important to me. And, um, you know, I have several friends and people that I know who have gone through similar experiences, and, and I understand, you know, how bad it can get. And, and I know how much it means to people to be able to hear from guys with your experience and backgrounds and on, on you know, how to deal with some of these things and steps that they can take. Uh, so I really do appreciate you guys coming on and I want to thank you for your service as well. Hey, thanks a lot, John, man. And really appreciate you, uh, you having us. Uh, I mean, yeah, man, real grateful for you having us on this show. Yeah. Appreciate the opportunity, John. <laughs>